Welcome to a very special episode of Pricing Nature. I'm Casey Pickett, Yale Planetary Solutions Project Director and Director of the Yale Carbon Charge. And I'm Naomi Schimberg, a junior in Yale College. So last summer, my friend Gavin Weinberg texted me and said, Naomi, I can't believe it, but your podcast is on a Hank Green video. You can go further, and I encourage you to go further. I'd suggest a podcast called Pricing Nature to understand the complexities of carbon pricing and international agreements. You should also check out David And Naomi, for those of us over 30 in the room, can you explain who Hank Green is? Of course. So Hank Green is a vlogger, entrepreneur, and author. He's a host of Crash Course and SciShow, which are educational YouTube channels with a combined 19 million subscribers and a big part of the reason why I graduated high school. Um, <laughs> but as you'll hear today, he got his start in science communication thinking about the environment. As you can imagine, we have many subscribers. One might even say a plethora. Mm, indeed. But we don't have as many as Hank Green. This feature was big for us. It was, yeah. And so naturally, we wanted to thank Hank for featuring us and learn how he heard about us. But then I got the idea, what if he came on the show? So I sent him an email and asked for an interview. Uh, Naomi? Okay, sorry, sorry. I sent him many emails, but eventually he responded, ninth time's the charm. <laughs> so he did. <laughs> and on a glorious day in December 2021, we picked up the old Zoom phone. Now, as fellow science communicators, we wanted to understand what kind of change he's trying to bring about and how those of us working in climate communication can be more effective. But we ended up getting into deeper questions, like does individual choice exist independent of the influences of societies? And the emotionally laden question, should oil companies be allowed to make money from the clean energy transition? Without further ado, here's our lightly edited conversation with Hank Green. Hank Green, it's a real pleasure to have you on Price and Nature. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm a really big fan of what you do. I appreciate you doing it. I, it has been very informative for me. I've learned a lot. Can't tell you how thrilled I am to hear that. Um, so we want to have a conversation about climate education. Sure. Something that you do very well, we are trying to do. Yeah. We'd like to start with, with where you started. Um, okay. What we think of as like your original job before YouTube um, was writing for EcoGeek. Yeah, that was uh, that was my thing. I started. So I was, I was in graduate school in Montana studying environmental studies for my master's degree, and um, I took a class that was called Starting a Magazine. And so I started a blog because <laughs> the idea of starting a magazine in two thousand four was a bad idea. Uh, and so EcoGeek was the blog that I started to, to and, it, and it was really a reaction to being in an environmental studies master's program and being constantly exposed to terrible news. And I was like, what? There's got to be some news that's not bad. And technology was kind of the only place I was finding that news. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's, I don't think that's the case. There's lots of good news in policy. There's lots of good news in even in U.S. policy, though I'm not feeling that mood today. Of yep. the, you know, I, when we're recording this, is uh, a lot of climate legislation is sort of suddenly much more up in the air than it felt uh, a week ago. But yeah, so that was it was a response to that, and uh, and it was, became my job, weirdly enough, for a little while. So now, uh -huh. um, what kind of change are you trying to bring about? Oh gosh, I mean, it's so like the the conversation about how to communicate about climate or any any complicated uh, contentious issue is 
necessary, but never going to end on a like a solution because it shifts all the time and your audiences are different. It's who are you making the content for? Are you trying to convince people? Are you trying to activate people who are already convinced? Are you trying to get views or are you trying to get change? And to what extent are those, do those things relate to each other? Like you're not going to change anybody's mind if nobody's reading your stuff. So my sort of um, lane I have several, but like my main lane is science communication. Generally, I have a TikTok that's quite popular. And so I reach a lot of people who are, you know, under 25, um, who maybe are interested in science. And when you are in that lane, like sometimes it's like, here's how they build bridges under underground. And that's was that sentence didn't make any sense, but whatever, something like that. Or like, wow, caterpillars are weird. And like, nobody's going to get mad about that. People are going to be interested in it. Um, but then like you get two pieces of the world that actually affect uh, the decisions that we're making right now as individuals and as a society. Um, and that, you know, in science communication, that bumps up against vaccines a lot. It bumps up against climate a lot, bumps up against some other stuff too. And um and so, like, I do see that as, like, so I've established myself, like, some credibility here. I've worked hard to not get stuff wrong for a long time, and so you know that I'm mostly not getting stuff wrong, and when I do get stuff wrong, I talk about it, and I talk about why I got it wrong. So establish that credibility first, uh, which is a tricky, tricky thing, um, and uh, and it happened, like, kind of unintentionally for a lot of my career. And then, like, Hopefully that means that people will take it more seriously when I say like this is a crisis and we need to be treating it as such and 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 also from the other angle the solutions that I hear that are like oh if only we'd spend 500 million dollars on this problem everything would be solved like that's also bs that that's not a real thing it's going to it's going to take sacrifice it's going to require a different world than the one that we live in now it's going to require people to make decisions like if you're going to like try and like live as if this is a crisis then you're going to like make decisions that maybe are going to make your life a little less pleasant. Your house might be a little less warm in the winter. Uh, you might wear a sweater inside more often, like Jimmy Carter said, and you might, uh, you might eat less meat and like, uh, like a hamburger, but I don't eat them anymore. So, uh, I'm a chicken boy now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm sorry. I haven't gone all the way to Hank Green. Inter- yeah. Yeah. Pricing nature interviews. Chicken boy, Hank Green. Um, so, so you, you are very much hinting and, and headed in the direction that I want to go, but I, I, can you articulate a theory of change? How, mm. what work are you trying to do and how does that then make other things change to get to the result that you want? Yeah, I mean the I I believe that children are our future. <laughs> Great uh, start. <laughs> uh they're also the present to some extent uh being people who exist. <laughs> Oftentimes you want to reach people before they're in the middle of an argument. Like that's really the time to reach them with information that might eventually lead to an argument. If you invite them into an existing argument, you're asking them to take a side. And like this is generally how our worldviews are formed is that like I got the information from my, you know, sociologist mother that racism was real um, in, in like in 1989 in very sort of like clear and present ways that were discussed openly. Um now, apparently, that's a contentious conversation that, that you have to be on one side or the other of. That's a lot of what I hope for, is that, like, these messages of reality, of, like, how strange a caterpillar is, lives alongside 
the severity of like impacts of a two degree Celsius increase in the climate of of our planet. A huge problem among the people who have have been exposed to these ideas is that they're exposed to the scariest version of it. And so like you also don't get changed when you have hopelessness. So you have to have that that balance between um, getting the correct image of our world and how it is changing into people's minds without resorting to the kind of rhetoric that leads to increased hopelessness and like this is a fairly normal thing when you realize that the world doesn't have to be the way that it is and that like things might be broken you can you can kind of clean the slate and be like okay so what world would it be if i thought it was perfect and like always that's gonna result in good and bad ideas in the same person like i, rem I remember this period of my life where i was like reforming my vision of what the world could be but that's a really important time to be reaching people and uh and it is also a really common time for for people to think like okay i've got the uh, i've got in my head the picture of what the world should be and we're so far away from that that i basically give up mm -hmm. and then there's sort of like a little path back from there usually hopefully for people where you know you start start to see how progress actually gets made and that it can be made so i'm trying to communicate that whole thing all at once um, and push back against the narrative that we as humans have no control over we as humans. Um, it, it seems to be the message. And I'm like, well, it turns out that every gallon of gasoline that gets burned is burned by a person. <laughs> uh, like that pe people make that choice. And like, there's reasons we make that choice. So like I was exposed to this in an uncomfortable way where uh, my college was paid for by my grandfather, who among many other things in his career, was the an executive at an oil company, like an energy company that had an oil rig named after him. And so like, so I'm like sitting in my grandfather's basement, like, and like loved, loved my grandparents very much, but like disagreed with them on a lot of stuff. Even like my mother disagreed with them on a lot of stuff. Like it was very sort of obvious to me that there was like a, some, you know, the kind of contention that we see among families and sitting there and like looking at that the picture of the oil rig named after my grandfather. What's um, the name of the, it? I'm not going to tell you. That's <laughs> weird. You can figure it out if you go. I don't think it's, it's not operating anymore. Um, so he was like in the 60s, he did this. And knowing that like a lot of the sort of advantages I had was because of this. And then coming to terms with the fact that like he and everybody who works in that industry they know that like they are solving problems for people and that like without their work, I can't go see my family in an airplane. Like that's a real thing. And that isn't a problem that now, now there, there was a transition that they made where they were like, now we're going to actively work to maintain our stranglehold over the energy system in this country and not allow change that even if it's technologically viable to take hold. But like, I try to remember that um, before light bulbs we burned whales so like there before my light bulbs were powered by coal they were powered by dead whales so there's like there's like a good transition there that's like it's better to use coal to have lights than dead whales uh, and it's better to use solar panels than coal and like this is a transition that we move toward and to sort of like give myself that perspective uh is valuable even if it is, I think it's it's tempering. I think maybe makes me stronger, but a little bit less uh, inflammatory. So okay, so to to play back the theory of change, 
bit here, and I want to dig into this because it's a way of reflecting on what we're trying to do through the Price of Nature podcast as well. It sounds like the theory might go something like people are actually making decisions and choosing behaviors that are driving climate change. In order to influence people, we have to uh, influence their set of ideas early on and before they get into a a conflictual kind of situation. Mm -hmm. um, and the best way to do that is to establish credibility and to focus on a broad base of science education that then treads into particularly important areas like climate change sometimes, but isn't mm -hmm. purely about that. Yeah, I think that that can, that there is a lot of advantage to that. Now, obviously that like, like if there are a group of people who are very activated and want to be more involved. And I think that this is part of the change is that like you take somebody who sort of doesn't have much thought about this stuff and like some portion of them take a hundred percent of those people and you turn them into people who are, you know, recognize the existence of the problem. And then, uh, and then you take some portion of those people who become more active in some way who might be interested in politics themselves or in working and advocacy and lobbying, et cetera, or people who are just going to be active in their community and, and like tell people about things so that they'll be more likely to support policies that are work to take on the problem. And so you have to, you, you have to have content like your content that's out there also, like, obviously I don't think that like the average uh, 20 year old TikToker is going to be like, I'm really interested in the economics of externalities um right. and and but like i think that 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 is a thing that happens as you know if you catch them in the right moment and if they have the right perspective and if they're um you know if they have the sort of space to do it so so like there there is a lot of pieces of this but i think also if we, i mean if we're talking about like changing minds like what is the change that we're talking about is it is it like like individual change is it social change because of course like we can all buy impossible burgers until we die and it's not going to solve the problem so like what you really want is for people to change their minds enough that they support policies that like and like this is something that i try to remember is that they're gonna hurt a little bit and like there's ways to structure it so that it hurts less but like it always hurts a little bit even if it it only hurts the richest people there's always going to be stories this is a, a thing that is very frustrating is that you can make it so that like a piece of legislation benefits like 90 percent of people but you'll find a farmer somewhere who is actually suffering due to the legislation and like you tell that story and it's like actually this seems completely like political suicide to try and support this thing that is like making life miserable for this farmer yeah and you can even find a farmer out there who like can say like I loved this politician before they did this and they destroyed my and like then that's just such a such a powerful story and we are story based people yeah so like the you know in the long term we're gonna need market based solutions I I mean I'm talking to the people who who agree with me on this but right aren't we <laughs> I mean it seems reasonable right? <laughs> but like, you you want people to be in a place where they um. Where, to, where, where they make decisions that do two things. One, they increase their likelihood that they're going to support the market-based solutions. Two, they're starting to create the market. Mm -hmm. So like they're, they're building a little bit of a market for like a, a, of demand for things like electric cars, like solar, that's lowering the barriers to those things so that it is easier to implement the market-based stuff because you had the early adopters. This is like a story of all technology. Yeah. And I think that like, you know, the frustrating thing is like those early adopters are going like, they're not going to be the 
people with the least, you know, <laughs> the, the, the early adopters are, this is Elon Musk's stroke of genius with Tesla. Like, don't try and make a Bolt. Uh, don't try and make an EV1. Make a uh, supercar that, like, isn't going to be practical because it's like you need you need to get you need to open the door somehow so you build a roadster and then you you scale down from there so so we need the the tesla of sweaters yeah well uh. solar like solar panels on people's houses are kind of that like they're cool yeah. they feel they feel good they feel you know utility scale is obviously much more sustainable but like we do it on our houses because it's like feels like we're making an individual choice and like you're signaling that you care and that you're treating it like a crisis and also, you get to like open your app and be like, ah, it was a good sunny day. Look at all the kilowatts I made. And, you know, and, and it's like it's kind of geeky and fun. Um, so things like that exist. Now, I, I don't I don't think that we're going to make the Tesla of sweaters. But like I remember when I was excited about LED light bulbs and I bought them a little early. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, actually, these suck. <laughs> But now they're great It's because I was an early adopter of LEDs. Same thing with ebooks. You know, so they're like a lot of different kinds of things that you can make the case that are are like paths towards sustainability, but are also just kind of like fun. All right, well, that's a I like that bridge of market pull in uh, in bridging the question about should we focus on individual action or systemic change yeah it's wild to me that we have created that as a dichotomy and it's frustrating i like i hate these tweets from people who like every time i talk about you know people making choices or like there are a couple of different services that will calculate your carbon footprint and then offset it for you and people being like this bp's idea bp wants you to care about your carbon footprint i'm like oh why are we mad suddenly (laughs) um so like these things affect each other like there isn't a harsh line between the individual and society like we like society is made up of individuals that's what that's like the the thing about being a person we feel like we're individuals but we're kind of not but we kind of are that's very (laughs) strange Um, it's like waves and uh, particles yeah it's yeah we are yeah it's like we're definitely all making individual decisions that somehow line up on a really normal curve like we just make a perfect bell somehow with our with our really individual, definitely based nothing about society decisions. So given that, like when you're deciding to weigh in on climate, either through an whole episode or, you know, through a, a mention, it sounds like you've got this what shouldn't be a dichotomy between individual mm-hmm. and society uh, in mind. But like, what are, the, what are the other challenges in talking about climate and educating about climate that you, that you find as you're doing this work? So I remember back in like the early aughts when I was just first starting to do this, that um, you, know, you would always be challenged by deniers who, you know, obviously we're all motivated in our reasoning. Um, and a challenge that, I faced then and that I see a lot of people facing now is like being able to not engage. Like, it's just, it's not interesting to me. It, I, and so I decided early on, I was like, I'm not interested in talking about whether or not there's a problem. And I feel like talking about whether or not there's a problem is a problem. Like, I think that that's, you know, I wouldn't entertain the idea that like dogs aren't animals. Like if that sort of came up or like, here's, here's one that used to be a thing that people believed dogs don't feel pain. 
And like, I'm not interested in like entertaining that as an idea. Like if you come at me with like dogs don't feel pain, I'm like, I don't, that person is not connected to reality and I'm not having that conversation. Why would I talk to someone who has like such a clearly untrue and objectionable belief? <laughs> this is how I feel about climate deniers. I'm like, this, this person either believes this because they have a lot of reasons to believe it because they, you know, they, their identity is tied up in, in fossil fuels. And I understand that. Like, I understand having my identity tied up in, in like, the, the technologies and products that I use. And, and, like, I get, like, cars are, like, I love motocross. I like demolition derbies. I like, I like monster trucks. Like, that stuff's great. <laughs> it's, like, the only thing we should use fossil fuels on. I, like, I will let go of monster trucks last. And, and like, I don't think that they are probably a huge percentage of the gasoline consumption. So probably going to be okay with that. And so I get it. But like, I, because of that, like, I don't see it's on the verge of conspiracy theory at this point, the, the sort of um, level of motivated reasoning that's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think that like most people, I think that like, I don't know, I feel like either that's that battle is won or I'm not interested in in connecting with it. Like, can you say more about that? What do you, what do you mean the level of motivated reasoning is on the verge of conspiracy theory? Well, when you sort of, when you, when you look at how people are like, Oh, the sun is actually just closer to the earth and that's why things are getting warmer. Mm-hmm. Like the, like it just don't like, it seems like you're trying, you're looking anywhere for some reason why it's getting warmer. Like everyone now agrees that it's getting warmer. And then now what you see is sort of like the more legitimate voices in the fossil fuel industry saying, yes, Climate change is real. Yes, it's caused by humans, but at the moment, it's too expensive to shift. And you know that's what the API is saying out loud on, like, in front of people on news shows. Like, they they agree that climate change is caused by people, but like, we just can't we can't take it on right now. We need to stick with fossil fuels for a little while because otherwise, it'll crash the economy. And like, that's a conversation that we can have. Um, and I and you know, in France, they saw that very problem where they were like let's have a big fossil fuel tax and people were like actually that really is great for parisians who uh, have a subway but like it does feel a little bit like you've ignored uh some of the country here and we don't uh we're not all on board here so let's make sure that this is a a thing that maybe affects people equally somehow which is of course impossible <laughs> it's hard like I, like yeah. that's the other thing is that like I, I want to recognize that all of this is hard and yeah. and and if we don't recognize that it's hard then it's very easy to sort of say politicians are idiots and can't get anything done and the other people are evil um and uh i just don't i also don't like that i don't yeah I, i've seen that uh be good at activating people it, it, to, to to be more active um mm-hmm. But I've not seen it in the end be good at having change get made. Right. I feel like. So to contrast our approach and your approach a little bit, you know, we've our theory of change is, and this may display a um, a lack of ambition. Um, but, <laughs> you know, we've decided that if if we can, we're postulating that if we can reach. 10,000 people. And the people we're aiming at are you know, folks from um, your New Yorker climate article reading mm-hmm. grandmother yeah. to the environmental studies undergrad or master's student, mm-hmm. but probably not the climate policy PhD student. 
um, right? That 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 yeah. window. And yeah. if you can reach ten thousand of those people, and then some portion of them end up better informed and more comfortable with market-based climate policy, and are more able to talk to their friends about it, mm -hmm. then we will have you know th th that when we started this, we were thinking there's likely to be a, a, a big climate policy push at some point in the next couple of years, mm -hmm. and the fossil fuel industries are likely to push back really hard. Let's try to uh, improve the level of education in uh, a segment of the folks who are likely to, to engage in that conversation so that people are more comfortable and more able to push back and say, actually, no, that, that's not the way that this is uh, likely to work. You know, just pe people out there able to actually defend um, mm -hmm. the policy. Um, yeah. You're aiming at a much wider audience, but there's still this... Uh, as you just referred to, like that, there's some significant part of the population that's much larger than the population that believes that the Earth is flat, believes that climate change is not human caused. And yeah, how do you think we should we address that? Uh, do we, should we worry about it? Like, how yeah, I mean, and there's there's like 30 percent of the U.S. population who thinks that vaccines are dangerous. Like these, the the most well studied vaccines in human history, and like the, you know these things end up right now at least coming down really harshly on democrat republican lines in the u.s because like the, we've just kind of decided that like in order to be a good one of one group you have to disagree with everything that the other group is saying and that's really that like that how to change that i don't freaking know um, and that's what it, that's the, the root it feels like to me of that. Now, I think a lot of those people don't really think like, they're not like conspiracy theorists, like trying to like justify why the world is flat. They just are sort of like, ah, oh, well, my friend says the world is flat and like, I don't really need to think too much about that. So that that's good enough for me. So, so yes, I think that I'm, you know, also going to almost entirely reach a bunch of people who are going to come to the same conclusions regarding climate change. So it's pretty easy for me to disregard the the voices that are not that like are sort of shouting, oh, no, climate change isn't real. And like the people in the comments are taking care of them faster than I could anyway. The hmm. I guess I want to ask you I want to ask you a question. Sure thing. So like, I think that these are both the similar pieces of the story of change like i'm i'm reaching them earlier you're reaching them later in the process mm -hmm. um and and you know you get people connected to the idea and aware of market-based solutions you know they're they're talking to each other about them and they're like oh that sounds smart and that's like makes it more likely that that kind of change could actually happen when you see the sort of push against market-based solutions like to me that's sort of like very like it's way beyond the normal scope and so like the way that that ends up getting talked about is like they want to increase the price of gasoline they want to increase the price of heating and like you know those are the things that we don't we actually like we like particularly with heating like you want to make sure that that's not a, a real problem because people aren't going to switch over <laughs> the, the, it's not like a fast solution to switching over from heating oil and natural gas to um, and like people need to be warm in the winter. So yeah. like, that, like, oh, here it is. I think that, uh, the way that this gets done probably is that like, it takes forever. Sorry. And in the meantime, all of these very large companies will figure out ways to make money and continue existing. Like we're not, it's not like we're going to put Exxon out of business. They'll just be better at generating, uh, energy in new ways that don't affect the climate as much or at all. Yep. 
the story that a lot of people want to hear is let's destroy the oil companies. And like in the long term, probably that doesn't happen. And like, that's not as fun of a story where it's like, well, we punched each other in the face for 50 years and then we came out the other side. Exxon's still making a lot of money, but like the carbon uh, is, is starting to, is starting to wane. And already the carbon is starting to wane to some extent. And like coal companies are going to get their asses handed to them because they're <laughs> haven't been, they haven't innovated in the last, I don't know, hundred years. Um, but the, you know, uh, I shouldn't say that if there's coal people listening, you have innovated. <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a fan of a lot of the ways you've innovated, but look, your acid rain got better. Good job. Um, but you know, ultimately like that's a very, very hard transition to make. Whereas I think that like, there will be liquid fuels. There will be like, if, if you have the kind of money and you are in the energy industry, you know, the energy companies will figure out a way to make it through and they will continue to provide services that like, frankly, we need and use. So I don't know, like it's these, like you wanted, like everybody wants a simple story. And so you have to give a lot of people a simple story, but, it, but the, the, what's going to happen isn't going to be a simple story. It's going to be slow. It's going to be annoying. It's going to require a ton of work for incremental change. And, uh, and in the end, the, our enemies will thrive, but in a in a world in which the, the change is being made, is that like should we just ignore that and not talk about it? <laughs> should we pretend like should we pretend like the battle is like right now and must be fought today? Uh, and this is a thing in climate change. I, like I hear all the time, people are like, "I heard that the tipping point happened two years ago." <laughs> You know, mm. and I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, there's lots of tipping points. Um, we will continue to tip over other tipping points forever. And, you know, the IPCC report was really clear that every fraction of a degree that we prevent saves lives and money like way more than you could ever imagine. So, yeah. like, let's it's do everything. Continuous, we can. Yeah. not a binary variable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah uh, it's a great question. I, I, I think we have the same question for each other. I mean, it's, yeah. um, you know, I wanted to ask you about, uh, tips and tricks for being a good <laughs> climate educator and like how you deal with complexity versus simplicity yeah, yeah. in your message. Uh, that's one of the, one of the hard parts about, uh, emotionally hard parts about Kim Stanley Robinson's latest novel. Yeah. Um, right. Is that, and then a bunch of oil companies figure out that they can, uh, reverse the flow of their pumps and pump a bunch of stuff back underground. And, and isn't that up... interesting that that's emotionally difficult? Yeah. Shouldn't we be like, oh, amazing. Some, a bunch of people can get rich solving the problem. And like, this is, I have this frustration with vaccines as well, where everybody is sort of like, what, like we shouldn't be letting Pfizer and Moderna make so much money off these vaccines. And I'm like, they are saving us so much money. And they're capturing some tiny fraction of that like value that they have created through their remarkable technology that like literally just saved your grandmother's life. <laughs> and like, I, I don't know, like, I feel like that's okay. Like, it, like we seem to think it's okay to make money with solving problems. And if it's not now, I'm yeah. now I've yeah. been totally in favor of, of governments creating artificial markets to support that stuff, which we did in the U.S., but we should also be creating artificial markets to support it in not the U.S. because it turns out diseases don't care about the lines that you drew on a map, but whatever. Can, yeah. can we get to our brains to a place where we think, oh, my God, Exxon just made a billion dollars saving us $10 billion of climate damage and think that's great 
and the really emotionally hard part is like not only turn turning the drills around but saying here's here's 10 billion dollars for the coal that's still in the ground because you're gonna make that 10 billion dollars if you take it out and so we're gonna pay you 10 billion dollars to keep it in mm-hmm. and that is a that's an I think that's an important part of the solution, but it feels really bad to say, hey, person who caused this problem, here's a lot of free money. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I, I find myself wondering, um, you know, as I'm listening to you, to what extent is more yoga and meditation the solution? Because <laughs> because the the emotional content here is so important. I mean, we, we observed this last year. Um, in the flip around um, carbon pricing, um, you know, th- this decades-long mm-hmm. sort of, uh, yeah. we, we, we made the analogy like a rom-com where he likes her and he's not sure she likes him and then yeah. makes it clear and then she realizes that she does like him but then she decides that once it's clear that he likes her, she doesn't like him. <laughs> um, this back and forth between the progressives and, and yeah. conservatives on market mechanisms um, yeah. And it's, 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 it strikes me as a similar kind of thing. When our identities uh, get bound up in policies, things get really weird. Yeah. Remember Gavin Weinberg, who clued us in to our cameo in Hank's Climate Policy Explainer video? Gavin is a huge fan of Hank Green and has been giving us ideas on pricing nature for the last year. So we decided to invite him onto the call so he could ask a question. I want to open this up here, um, and in particular, want to see if if Gavin wants to weigh in. As we said, Gavin introduced me anyway to you, and and he's been a great source of uh, feedback and ideas for this podcast. Gavin, do you have a question or two you want to ask? Yeah, thank you for that uh, introduction. Uh, I was curious, Hank, about, you mentioned earlier, like climate panic, and I'm curious about your experience with that, what, you know, accuracy uh, you think that that kind of thinking has, and then also just the productivity of that, and then how to combat that, and just kind of your view. Yeah, I think that climate panic has two main sources. One is bad news, of which there is plenty, and then the other is wanting to not have to think about it. And the reality is, um, there's lots to think about, and I encourage people to care about things more than climate. I don't encourage everyone to do that, though. I think that some people need to care primarily about climate, and some people need to care primarily about criminal justice, and some people need to care primarily about reproductive rights. And we need like people to have first issues and to not let all of the things go blah, 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 and then be like, I can't do anything everything's terrible so like we have to we have to have people and and i think sometimes people are like i feel like a i would feel like a bad person if all of these things were my primary issue and so i'm gonna make i'm gonna build a story in my head about why i shouldn't be interfacing with that one and that one and that one and 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 also sometimes your primary issue is going to be you're final. <laughs> like the, you know, you, the, the, your primary issue is going to be your mental health. Your primary issue is going to be your relationship uh, with your partner, which needs attention. Your primary issue, like at that moment, is going to be your kid or your neighbor who is nuts or not, or, or needs your help. Like either way, I think that we need to accept that there are big issues 
that people are going to fix that aren't going to be fixed by us. I think that that can be hard. And also to get away from the, like, sometimes I think that there's two ways things can, like, our brains make this story. There Either something's not going to get fixed because I can't fix it, or it's going to fix itself. And what we need is instead the gratitude for the people who are taking that on without the responsibility for me be, having to be one of those people. And, and so like that, like, that's how I feel about my sort of secondary and tertiary issues where I'm like, I care a lot about that. And so the role that I'm going to play is just being so grateful for the people who have that as a primary issue and, uh, and to think about them and to support them and to care about the work that they do. And so, so anyway, I sort of took that in a very different direction, but I think that that is often the source of the hopelessness is like, because I don't want to have to think about that one too. But instead, I think that we should be grateful for the people who are putting it first while we focus on the things that we have to focus on um, when we don't happen to be one of those people. As for what to do about it, I think that oftentimes when you're 20, <laughs> you're just being exposed to so many ways in which the world isn't perfect. Um, after maybe having been you know, 14 and, and sort of thought like, you know, the majority of the ways the world isn't perfect is like how I'm being treated by my peers. Um, and that, and that, that sort of being the primary concern. So that, that transition is really fast. Uh, it doesn't feel fast when you're in it, um, but it's, it's fast. And from a 41 year old's perspective, it's very quick. And, uh, but it is because it, it's such a big change and I, it can feel like a ton. I think that it, it kind of fixes it, like people fix it in themselves over time. Like they find the ways to, to understand um, how, how problems get solved if they're paying attention. And then also, I think that it's important to talk about the progress that has been made as part of the story of the progress that we need to make. And I, sometimes it's, it's seductive to not do that because um, you want to tell the sort of scariest story. But, um, you know, the, the reality of the success of, of cap and trade systems for other pollutants are, I think, a really important part of the story of what we should do about carbon. And if we try to pretend like no environmental problem has ever been solved, then I think that can be activating for a moment, but it can burn really hot really fast and, and you run out of fuel. That was our conversation with Hank Green. I hope you had as much fun as we did. We are going to take a mid-season spring break and we'll be back in May with new episodes on carbon pricing inside companies, carbon offsets, and lots more. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by Naomi Schimberg with help from Jacob Miller, Casey Pickett, Maria Jong, and Cami Ramey. Sound engineering by Jacob Miller. Original music by Katie Sawicki. Special thanks to the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition and the Tobin Center for Economic Policy for their partnership, and to Ryan McAvoy, Stuart DeCue, and Heather Fitzgerald for making this episode possible. This is a little bit navel-gazy, but uh, really curious, how did you find out about us? Oh, shoot. Um, honestly, no, <laughs> I had a, I was at a, I was at a party and, uh, and a, uh, a guy who was like my friend's dad was telling me about like, uh, the, the work he was doing in, in advocacy. And he just had a meeting with some legislator in Montana and he was telling me about, you know, how, how important 
they thought market-based solutions were. And, and I wish I could tell you that he was like, check out this podcast, but he wasn't. He was like, watch this hour-long, rambly, bad YouTube video. And so I started watching it, and I was like, I'm not going to watch this. <laughs> <laughs> I know like 90% of this stuff and uh, and it's very slow. So then I, I was like, I need a podcast. Uh, so I searched for like carbon pricing on like Apple podcasts. <laughs> I think I just searched for it. That's awesome. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's how it happened. <laughs>